All right, back to James. Return to our series, Putting Faith into Practice. Are you still reading the book of James? Keep reading it. Read it over and over and over. It takes a while to really, you you can learn something from it, but you want to really absorb it so that it starts showing in your lives. Because Christianity is a practical faith. The faith that we possess will be practiced in our life. What you truly believe is in evidence in your life. It won't be concealed. A few weeks ago when we began this series, I taught you that James' purpose in writing this letter was sending it to scattered Jewish Christians who lived outside of Jerusalem, perhaps even outside of Israel. And he was teaching them how to live out their faith personally and practically. Remember, they've been raised as Jews and they practiced as Jews. So now they're Christians. He's teaching them the difference. But he's also encouraging them, these professing Christians, to test their faith, to discover whether their faith is genuine. He didn't want anyone to be deceived about their true spiritual state. And I encourage all of us in that way. Do you know your true spiritual state? And in several places, James refers to deception, self-deception. James chapter 1 at verse 16 at verse 22. Today's message focuses on humility, which is another evidence of living faith. So open your Bibles to James chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. So humble yourselves before God. Now the Greek word, you don't need to know the Greek word. But, but you, I want you to understand that the word in the Greek lends itself to several English words. Humble, which is in the New Living that I'm using. But many of you are holding other translations. And they may say submit or surrender. Even give yourselves to God completely. And the message translation says let God Work his will in you. Now the truth is that no one can be saved without submitting to God. Without willingly coming under his authority as Lord. Which means master. Without agreeing to follow his will and his word no matter what. Being born again is changing relationships. Is putting yourselves in relationship with God. And his identity is yes it's heavenly father. Yes it's friend in Jesus Christ. But it's Lord and it's master. Salvation requires humility. So we're going to look in this passage of James. At several things that humility includes. First it includes resisting Satan. Verse 7. The latter part of verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word devil, the Greek word there is diabolos. And the word devil is not a name, it's a title. And this title, devil, means slanderer or accuser. It's a title given to the spirit being whose name is Satan. Choosing to humble yourself to God. To surrender your life to him requires you 
to refuse the temptations of Satan. Becoming a child of God means separating from Satan. See, there's no middle ground. We either belong to Satan or belong to, our, to God. And our lives, our motivations reveal the identity of our true master. You may say, well, I mean, I never followed Satan. I mean, I didn't believe in, I didn't have pentagrams on the floor and smoke and rituals. It doesn't matter. There's no middle ground. You either follow God or you follow Satan. One, is, one or the other is your master. So I begin to hold up the mirror again. Who is your master? Ask God to show you. 1 John 3, 8. You can flip over there. Just a couple of pages over on 985 to the right. First John 3, 8. But when people keep on sinning, now, now see the problem is as Christians in, in this American culture, we're always saying, well, everybody sins. No, yes, there's sin in each of our lives, but this is an, an attitude of sin. When you keep on sinning, it shows that we belong to the devil. So when people keep on sinning, it shows they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. See, a believer's life is turning from serving Satan to serving God. From being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness. And again, there's no middle ground. Romans chapter 6, 16 through 18. Now, Satan does still tempt us after we're born again, after we become Christians. Because even though we are born again, we still possess the flesh. The flesh is the physical part of us. It includes our minds, which are physical. And those things are not completely redeemed even after we're converted. A transformation occurs. The flesh is changed over time as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to be renewed. That's transformation from Romans 12, 1 and 2. But we still have wounds and weaknesses and habits that make us susceptible to Satan's enticements. When we're weakened by stress, when we have our feelings hurt, when we're disappointed, Satan offers us counterfeits to compensate for the true lasting comfort and contentment, also the peace that's found only in Jesus Christ. These substitutes, and what are they like? Physical pleasure, possessions, success, celebrity, which is related to success or popularity, pride, or substance abuse, which a, a form of substance abuse is materialism because we need cars, houses, clothes. We don't need the best of all of those things. That's substance abuse. 
And those things will distract us from pain. They'll divert our attention, our anger, our fear temporarily from our unsettled inner selves. You know what I'm talking about? Something happens. You're doing fine. You're not susceptible to sin. Something happens. You don't get a promotion. You lose a job. Your girlfriend breaks up with you. And that, that sadness stirs up your inner self. And you reach for something that you can grab quickly for relief. And it does for a while distract you. Divert your attention. But those things don't satisfy you. They don't fulfill. And they certainly don't provide lasting peace. The problem is they're easy to get our hands on. The peace of God takes effort and time to develop. But you can grab something that will distract you immediately, temporarily. And then you start reaching for it more and more quickly, more compulsively for relief. And the problem is that that's where addictions develop. Addictions of every form. So here's the question. What do you rely on for relief other than Jesus when you're unsettled? Some of our addictive habits appear harmless. Hobbies, television, movies, even reading. Well, what could be wrong with reading? Nothing unless you're resorting to that because you're unsettled inside and you can't enter the peace of Christ. Video games. This compulsive practicing and participation in video games, even exercise. None of these things in themselves are wrong, but if they take the place that only Christ should have, they're wrong. And they can be substitutes for seeking God alone for comfort and peace. So where do you find peace? Where do you seek comfort? Is it some place other than in Christ alone? Now back to Satan. The good news about Satan is that if you are born again, Satan cannot control you. On the screen, you don't need to turn there, but 1 John 4, 4 says the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in this world. So Satan can't force you to sin. He can't even cause you to sin without your cooperation. Turn to 1 Peter 5, 8. It's on 981 in, in the book we sell. And see, above that, it's in verse 6, it says, Humble yourself under God's power. But give your worries and cares, your fears, your frustrations, your anger to God because He cares for you. Because, see, when you're feeling these things, when you're worried, when you're concerned, when you're disappointed, when you've been hurt, when you're in pain, that's when Satan pounces on you. And so it says at verse 8, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. 
He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. So do you give in to temptation? And do you excuse it then by saying, well, I can't stop. Or do you say, well, well, everybody sins. So that's not an excuse. Because it keeps us from intimacy with God. Humility also includes reconciling with God. At verse 8. Back in James, not in First Peter. James 4, 8. Come close to God. And God will come close to you. The word reconcile means to end conflict. To bring persons back into relationship who are separated by hostility or enmity. Surrendering ourselves to God requires returning to Him. See, from birth we're separated from God by our sin. You say, well, how can infants or newborns have sin. Well, they have a sin nature, but that sin nature separates us from God. Before being born again, we don't desire nearness to God. Now, I didn't say we don't want admission into heaven if heaven exists. We know that if because we understand about heaven, we understand how do we enter heaven. So we do want forgiveness of our sins. But that doesn't mean that we want nearness to God. We don't naturally desire an intimate relationship with God. Well, why not? Because we want to direct our own lives. Not submit ourselves to God's will. Our relationship with God is enabled by the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Look at Romans chapter 5. It's on page 907. You notice I don't say that at first because I want you to be able to find it. 907. Romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 10. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. See, if you are born again, You have a new relationship with God. And you have a new nature. A nature that loves God, that desires nearness to Him. As born again believers, as children of God, we live in His presence. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You say, but but God's omnipresent. He's everywhere, isn't He? Yes. But you don't experience his presence unless you've been born again and received a spirit that can experience the spirit of God. 
we have an invitation to have an ever more intimate relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. We're invited to experience His presence, to hear His voice. But this requires practice in order to be able to discern His voice. It requires time. It requires effort. It takes time to learn to recognize God's voice. Some of you have been practicing this, attempting to hear God's voice. I don't think it happens immediately. Some of you, maybe it is easy. It wasn't wasn't immediate for me. I was a Christian for many years before I could discern God's voice. Among all the sounds that distract us. Some of these are sounds on the outside. Others are sounds within and voices within. But our, our culture has, has people and sounds crying out, clamoring for our attention. And we have to learn to screen out those voices and sounds. We have to schedule time to seek God through His Word and through prayer. You know, next year, our plan is to survey the entire description of Jesus' life. We're going to, to study a harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're having a book printed so that we can together study just the life of Jesus. Because it's in Christ that we see the nature of God. And we'll probably start that in December of next year. And it'll go a whole year. So I urge you, even now, prepare yourself. Invite your friends as we do a survey similar to the survey called The Story that we did a few years ago. But the question here for each of us is, have you reconciled with God? Are you seeking intimacy with Him by spending time in the Bible and in prayer? Are you learning to discern His voice? God is still speaking, but are you discerning it? Are you hearing it? You hear me talk about transformation prayer frequently. Transformation prayer is just that we pray with a facilitator who helps guide us so that we can discern the voice of God. And He will speak to us. And He'll take things that we believe that aren't true about Him and about ourselves, and He'll replace them With his truth. Humility also includes repenting of sin. We're back in James. Chapter 4. Submitted to God includes ridding myself of things that dull my spiritual sensitivity. Right now, ask God... What is it in your life that's desensitizing you to His Spirit? If I'm humble towards God, I will accept His opinion of what constitutes sin. Instead of my own opinion, my own preference. And I'll repent of those attitudes and those actions. The word repent, 
It's a Greek word, metanoia. And the reason I tell you that, you don't have to memorize that. But meta means after. And noia is to think. So literally, repent means to think differently or to think after. To reconsider. And so what repent means is changing our opinions about sins that we're indulging or tolerating in our lives. Instead of minimize, minimizing the wrongness of our behaviors, we see them as an offense against God. The God who loves us and who we love. The God who we want to honor. So we turn away from them. You know, I think cultural Christianity, you know, a lot of us grew up under real stern, dogmatic preachers. The problem is a lot of the preaching that we heard was really by men who were just angry. And so, but we became so sensitive to it that we moved away from preaching about the harm of sin that we've tolerated in our lives. I think we moved too far. Because God speaks, and this word speaks continually about the danger and the harmfulness of tolerating sin in our lives. It, it cuts us off. It, it desensitizes us to God. So if you ever hear me preach about sin in an angry tone, that's about me. You can discount me, but don't discount the truth of God's teaching about this destructive Habit, allowing sin in our lives. James 4, 8, first, the latter part of that, says, wash your hands, you sinners. Now, this word used by James is a reference to unbelievers. See, the problem, again, one of our cultural defenses, is we, we'll just say, well, everybody sins. But the response is, well, why would you choose to indulge something that makes you insensitive to God's spirit that doesn't make any sense when James says wash your hands you sinners he's talking to unbelievers but the origin of the expression is the requirement of ceremonial washing before worshiping God in particular before entering the temple and offering sacrifice to him on the south side of the city of Jerusalem Archaeologists have discovered, I think it's dozens of mikvahs. I didn't count them when I was there. But they're, they look like baptismal pools. And they were, the, they were where people could wash themselves before entering the temple. He continues in the latter part of John 4, 8. Purify your hearts. Now this is a, a Hebrew parallelism so wash your hands purify your hearts really is restating the same thing because James is associating outward sins of the hands our actions with the inner condition of our hearts our attitudes so if we want to demonstrate faith in God we must not only stop sinful actions but also seek a pure heart because our heart, you see, is the source of all of our outward sin. Matthew 15, 19. Continuing in James chapter 4. 
For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Other translations use double-minded. That word appears in James 1.8. And it literally means two-spirited. It means vacillating in opinion and purpose. It means you can't make up your mind what you want. And so James is rebuking people who lack integrity in their faith. Who are hypocritical. Because they claim to be Christians, but they act as unbelievers. They have no real desire to seek after God. They're really more interested in grabbing this world, but they're claiming to be believers. And even though our cultural Christianity makes that a minor matter, it's not insignificant. It's an indication that these people do not really possess true living faith. They're not born again. These people, these Jews, had accepted Christianity. They professed to be followers of Jesus, but they're not born again people. The comparison in our day would be sincere children or even adults who, who maybe they walked an aisle. Maybe they prayed a prayer. Perhaps they were baptized. But they haven't been born again. So they don't have a different nature. And they're torn between faith and the world. Because they've never received a new nature. The people that James referred to were people who said they believed, but they didn't show it. Does what you say you believe show in your life? True faith can't be hidden. Do you know that? It will be evident. Verse 9. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow And deep grief. Literally, that part of the verse that says, let there be tears for what you're done, says, be miserable about your life. Again, cultural Christianity says, oh, God only wants you to be happy. I can't find that. God calls us to be holy. And if we're indulging sin in our lives, then what James is saying is you ought to be miserable. And if you aren't miserable, that shows you're even farther from God. You can say, but everybody has sin. Yes, but that just means your conscience is seared. If you can engage in sin that you know is offensive to God and you feel no guilt, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. Let there be sorrow, which is mourning again over sin. Let there be deep grief. This is wailing aloud. It's an outward manifestation of distress over intentional sin. Have you come to that place where you've done something that you know is offensive to God and you just wail? 
over your own behavior. That's what James is is writing about here. A repentant person will have deep emotional remorse over his or her sin. Because this person, if he, if he does have a new nature, he will recognize that what he's done, what he's allowing in his life is rebellion against a loving God who sacrificed his only son to set us free from that very sin. You can feel that, can't you? He continues in our verse 9. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. And gloom instead of joy. Again, another Hebrew parallelism. He's just repeating the same thing to emphasize the importance. James is criticizing a worldly, self-centered attitude toward personal sin. He's denouncing this, this practice of minimizing the significance of sin. If we're living that way, it's a reflection of a shallow soul. Either an unbeliever or if a believer, you are in an extremely dangerous place and you're practicing a shallow version of faith. You're displaying insensitivity toward God and a dangerous presumption of forgiving grace. If you can practice sin... And then presume God's grace. You don't care about God's feelings. James is calling for Christians to grieve their willingness to sin. Not to minimize it. But instead to recognize it as rebellion against God that must be repented of. Can you feel the urgency? Second Corinthians 7 deals with this same issue. You can find it on 932. It'll also be on the screens. But try to find it yourself before I call out the number. 932. Because we have these promises, promises from God, promises of forgiveness, promises of eternal life. Because we have these promises, because of what God's given us, let us out of appreciation cleanse ourselves from everything that will defile our body and our spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. That, that word fear there, it doesn't mean you're afraid of damnation. You fear God, meaning you honor, you regard, you respect God. So you would never take something like sin that killed his son lightly. That's what fear in God is about. And then drop to verse 10. For the kind of sorrow... That God wants us to experience. Again this idea. God never wants you to be unhappy. That is not a biblical principle. If you're in the wrong place. God wants to send sorrow. 
For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. And if we're unsaved, you see, it results in salvation. And there is no regret for that kind of sorrow. Do you remember the day that God wounded you? So you would be born again. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand. Disappointment because you didn't get the promotion. Sadness because the girl broke up with you. Worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And you just drift farther and farther away as you cling those disappointments to your chest. And in fact, use them as a reason to reject God. That's worldly sorrow. Do I minimize my sins? Do you minimize your sins? Do you assume the forgiveness of God? Do you presume the grace of God? You couldn't be in a more dangerous place spiritually. Humility also includes rejecting pride. Verse 10, back in James 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. Humility is the starting point of salvation. You see, you have to deny yourself and say, no, I'm following after God. It's also the summary of a true relationship with God following salvation. The first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3, speaks of us being blessed because we're poor in spirit. Literally, humility there means, means make yourselves low. It's a different Greek word. So we make ourselves low before God, not by putting ourselves down, not by thinking terrible things about ourselves and even saying them so others will build us up. But this humility is seeing ourselves honestly in a genuine realization of complete unworthiness and lostness because of our sin. That's the starting point of salvation. Do you know what the word lost actually means? See, unfortunately, we, we've kind of kidnapped it in the church. And we've lost an understanding of what it really means. You ever lost anything? What's that mean? You don't have it. It's not where it's supposed to be. That's right. It's not in the right place. It's disconnected from God. We're misplaced spiritually. That's what being lost means. And so when we're lost, we're not just limited spiritually. We're not just doing something wrong. We're spiritually displaced. We're dead, biblically. We're separated from God. We're headed for total destruction. The more an unbeliever, or really even a believer, 
sees God as he truly is. Glorious. Holy. You ever had an experience like that? You got a glimpse of God. When you do, you will see yourself clearly as you really are. Sinful. Self-centered. Well, how do you know that? Well, there's examples of it in the scripture. Remember what Isaiah said when he saw God high and lifted up? He didn't say, I need a picture of this. When Isaiah experienced the presence of God, he said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, words are unclean. His heart is unclean. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There's a New Testament example of this too that looks a little different. You remember when Peter and the disciples had been fishing all night. They were worn out. They were ready to quit. And Jesus said, let down your net again. And they wanted to say, we're tired and we don't care what you're saying. He said, let down your nets another time. And reluctantly, they let down their nets. Do you remember this, this passage? It's found in Luke. When they pulled the nets up, the nets were breaking because they had so many fish. But what did Peter say? He didn't say, we're going to make some money. Look at all the fish. You know what he said? He said, Jesus, get away from me. I am too much of a sinner for you to be around. And when we catch a true glimpse of God, we are invariably humbled when we approach God humbly when we recognize our unworthiness we will recognize it for for his grace for his blessings we will repent of the sins we willingly commit and it puts ourselves we put ourselves in right relationship with him See, if you're somebody that's, you're seeking to gather attention, you, you want to be noticed, you'd love to be a celebrity. You lift yourselves pridefully above others. You reveal that your motivation is self-centered, not God-centered. You don't see God. You know, this, this, this proud, arrogant Christian celebrity, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't make any sense, does it? If I say, oh, look at me, look at me, listen to me, do what I tell you to do. I have not seen God. We show we don't see ourselves clearly when we behave that way. We display that we're not in right relationship with God. But if we will humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up in honor.
whose opinion matters to you. No one's above God's. God's opinion is true. And you know what? You don't have to manage your image in God's sight. Oh my goodness, I haven't, I haven't put anything on Facebook. I got to show somebody. Oh, look, look at, I ate a burrito for lunch. <laughs> or let me, get a, let me get a picture of my hip with the leg lifted. <laughs> I mean, do you see how foolish this is? It's all self-centered, not God-aware at all. Because you know what? If I'm aware of God... I am not trying to drag the spotlight to me. He knows truly who I am. And in His presence, I know who I am as well. What about you? Do you seek the praise and notice of others? Or do you desire recognition from God alone? Didn't you love the line in that song that Laura sang? I'm going to close with it. I don't need my name in lights. I'm famous in the Father's eyes. And nothing else matters. Look at your soul training. It's humility toward God present in my life. And is it apparent to others? Father God, show us ourselves. Let us see ourselves as you see us so that we can become the people you created us to be instead of the ones we're trying to fashion with our own hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ushers are here, I mean, counselors are here to speak or pray with you. They're also in the care connection room. Thank you for coming.